girlfriends, Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason, and uh, you guys are getting this podcast or this broadcast uh, at least two days later than the first one that we just did. I'm just four minutes from that last podcast, and I'm still in a in my wonderful conversation with Cade, a 15-year-old Cade. Uh, I've been calling the show for since he was 13. When I first met Cade, he was 13, and I met him at Minneapolis uh, a reality uh, two years ago. Now he's 15. It's strange that every year, every time I get a year older, everybody else gets a year older. <laughs> uh, but young people seem to change more than I do. I just get older looking a little more wrinkles. But uh, anyway, so um, I'm still kind of thinking about all of that stuff. And the question was about taking the the what what seems to be well justified knowledge we have about the nature of the universe and i'm putting it this way rather than saying uh science says because i think characterizing of uh, this discussion as pitting the authority of science against the authority of god's word is a mischaracterization I believe God's Word has authority as long as we understand it the way the author intended it to be understood. So it has to be properly under, uh, interpreted. I do not think science has any authority. I think science, there is no authority to science. What science is, is a discipline of discovering things and their ideas about what they discover and how, what, how to explain things changes over time. And some things that they discover is extremely well justified. And the reliability of their conclusions comes from the justification of the view in question and not because it is a pronouncement of science who is the authority. That is a very important distinction. I don't know that I've ever made it here on the show before, but that's a really important distinction. In my view, science has no authority as um, as a as a voice because the authority, the voice of science has changed over time. It's famously They've, it's changed over time. Whole systems that they used, scientists used to think were the case turn out not to be the case. Now, by the way, just think of the paradigm shift from some form of creation, intelligent design prior to Darwin, then after Darwin, a whole new uh, paradigm is, play, is put in place, and that's the Darwinian evolution paradigm. So just as an example, there's radical change over time with the opinions of scientists regarding facts for the world. This is why it's a mistake to say that science is an authority. The only thing that is authoritative, if that's and that's not even the right word, what we seem to be able to rely on are, are explanations that are well justified. And then it's the justification of those explanations that that um, that that give force to those ideas, not because some scientists said it was so. Science has no authority. But for me, as a follower of Christ, if I have well justified information that seems to go against the way I read Scripture, one of two things is mistaken. Either my my understanding 
of this piece of information that seems to be well justified is false, or Scripture is false. And now I have to ask myself the question, do I think, do I believe the Scripture because it's true, or is it true because I believe it? Do I believe the Scripture because it's true? And by the way, if, I'm, if, I, if that's the case, it's because my understanding of what the Scripture says actually matches the way the world is. That's what truth means. Your belief matches the world. Do I believe it because it's true? I believe it because I think it's true. It is not true because I believe it. Me believing anything cannot make it so. But if you have a particular take on Scripture that you will not allow to be informed by exterior facts, non-biblical facts, that are well justified, then it looks like your commitment to Scripture's authority is a leap of faith. It's true because you believe it. I think, convinced that Scripture is true. And what I mean by that is that it conforms to reality. And so when I find something about reality that, that is, seems really well justified, that initially goes against my understanding of Scripture, the sun rises, the sun sets. Really? No, it doesn't. The world spins. That's what's going on, as a matter of fact. Well, well wait a minute. What do we do with this verse? I'll tell you what we do with the verse. We, we ask ourselves, what are we missing? Now, there's an explanation I mentioned in the last show. Well, that's, that's the language of appearance. In fact, my iPhone, I go to the, what, the Thousand Oaks and the weather, and there I scroll down, and there it is, sunrise, sunset. It's got the times. We still use that language because it's language of appearance. Okay, nothing wrong with that. And then when we realize that's the way the language is used in the Bible, then we don't have a problem with it heliocentric universe. It isn't contravening Scripture. And by the way, if Scripture really was teaching, without question, a heliocentric universe, and we find out the the universe is not heliocentric—I'm sorry, if it taught a geocentric universe—and we find out that without question the universe is heliocentric, well, then the Scripture's false. Uh, And don't you—unless you just want to deny reality— and your belief in Scripture is a mere statement of your faith. You can't make something true by believing it. I'm convinced that there's not going to be a conflict between God's Word properly understood and the world that God Himself made. I think that all truth is God's truth, and there's a unity of that truth. And so what I'm trying to do as a Christian thinker is bring them all together and have as sound an understanding of, uh, of God's world as possible, and the best harmony as possible between both of God's books, both of His revelations. Now, by the way, I'm not at this point campaigning for one view or another, old earth or young earth. I'm just saying this is how the methodology have to work, has to work. We have to work to bring these two together, and not just say, my understanding of Scripture is this, and that's cast in concrete and facts be damned kind of thing. 
No, we have to look at the world God made, because he speaks with truth in both revelations, both natural and uh, and special. And those fit together. They don't contradict. And so I'm just looking for the answers that create the most harmony between what I believe are two revelations of God. Okay, not just the one. Anyway, so this is methodological, what I'm talking about here. And uh, it's, it's, it's formal, not material. You're going to have to make your own material applications. There are people who have views on both sides, and they think the Scripture is consistent with this and also with the scientific evidence. That, by the way, is a concordist approach. But it may be that what the author intended was not that we try to—is uh, not to present a chronologue. This happened first, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Maybe the author had a different intention, and if they had a different intention, we're misunderstanding what they're doing. I'm just offering it, again, in principle for you to think about. Okay, that's this postscript to last our show. Before we get to our callers, um, I made a reference to something last hour. In fact, John Noyes spoke about it on Wednesday at his own uh, event, uh, To the Point Live with John Noyes. Um, how uh, <laughs> how politicians are now using the Bible to justify abortion. So I have this printout right here. Here's a young lady. I don't know. I'd take her at about 17 years old. It's my guess. I got a 17 and a 14. She's in there somewhere. Looks like my daughter's girlfriend. Um, and she's kind of curled up, uh, knees to her chest, sitting there, looking off to the side, her hand to her mouth like she's pondering and wondering and worrying, actually, is what it looks like. So this is the young lady who's pregnant. And uh, the the headline says, Need an Abortion. That would be her, and by implication. Next line, California is ready to help. Visit abortion.ca.gov to learn more, okay? Underneath it says, uh, paid for by Newsom for California Governor 2022. Okay, so this is a political ad. Uh, This is meant to appeal to voters and to incur their favor on behalf of Governor Newsom for his re-election bid, apparently November. I didn't know he's up for re-election in November. Is that right, Amos? Is Governor Newsom up for re-election in six weeks or seven weeks? I don't know. What do I know? I, mean, this is a, I just live here. <laughs> anyway, that's what it says. Paid for by Newsom for California Governor 2022. I don't know, maybe he's campaigning early or something. But in any event, this is a political ad. And uh, he's counting on people, um, thinking well of him, because he he is campaigning for abortion liberties and is going to ensure that people in other states where abortion is made illegal um, in virtue of the recent decision by the Supreme Court, uh, traveling to other states where they can get an abortion. Now, this is the way it was when I was in college, when I first started college. Uh, I, I, I went to school in Michigan. I had a friend uh, that got pregnant. 
I just learned about this kind of through the grapevine and traveled to New York and got an abortion because in Michigan they weren't legal. In most states they weren't legal until Roe v. Wade in 73. And so people had to travel, and that's the circumstance we're facing now. And the governor is saying, come on down. You'll find help from us. But there's a little bit more to this advertisement uh, that puts it in a different category, because below where it says visit abortionca.gov to learn more, abortion.ca.gov, between that and paid for by Newsom, etc., is this line, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, Mark twelve thirty one. So what the governor is doing is he's taking a Bible verse and pressing it into service on behalf of abortion. Now, what is abortion? See, this is part of the problem with the discussion. What do you mean by abortion? Well, abortion is where you take the life of a innocent human being who is not wanted, who's in the way. Now, someone might say, well, that's, that's rhetoric. What's r- rhetoric about it? You are taking the life. That's the point. The life you're taking is a human life. That's science. Um, that human being is innocent. That's simple observation. You can't commit any crimes while you're still in the womb. And the reason is because that innocent human being is a problem. They're in the way of something that the individual wants. Now, whether someone has a right to do that or not is another matter. I mean, this is part of the discussion. Maybe the mother's rights trump the baby's rights, and these are ways of arguing in favor of abortion. But the point I'm making here is this act of taking the life of an innocent human being who is in the way and undesirable in some way, is being supported, allegedly, by Jesus himself. Because that citation from Mark twelve thirty one is Jesus. Interesting, by the way, um, I mean, I have a number of, of observations about this, but one of them is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Wait a minute, these is plural. That's just one commandment. If they were smart, they would have written, love your neighbor as yourself, Mark 12, 31. But they added the next line. There is no greater commandment than these. Wait, that's one. No, because there's two great commandments. And I'm looking at Mark chapter 12, verse now, verse 30. That's the verse that comes before it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So if you want to quote Jesus, why don't you quote both? Because it doesn't serve Governor Newsom's purposes. Now, this isn't a rant against Newsom, so I'm just going to leave him out of it for now, but his name's on the ad. It's the approach, and others have used it. It's utterly and completely disingenuous because they don't care what Jesus thinks about other things. They won't even cite the passage that comes before, which is implicit in this one they do cite. No greater commandment than these. 
because it doesn't suit their purposes. Okay, that's one problem. It's not even the whole verse. Now, another question I have here is, wait, isn't the unborn child my neighbor? The love your neighbor is the one you can see in the picture. That's the implication. Oh, this poor gal who finds herself pregnant. Now, both of my children are adopted from, let's just call them crisis pregnancies. I understand that circumstance. When I married my wife almost 25 years ago, she was a single mom who had a child out of wedlock. I get it. Okay? Um, But these things don't just happen. (laughs) It isn't like you just wake up some morning and find yourself pregnant. It's a result of actions that you've taken that naturally lead to that kind of thing, even if you're taking precautions and even if you don't intend pregnancy to result. So it isn't just like poor, innocent victim. Our choices have ramifications. In this case, the ramification is another human being that has been created. Now what? Love your neighbor. Is this young lady my neighbor? Yes. Isn't the child she is carrying my neighbor as well? Yes. <laughs> so how does how does love your neighbor as yourself inform the question of abortion? Well, both are my neighbor. So what do we how I'd be loving my neighbor by relieving that neighbor of an unwanted burden, but the only way I could do it is by, to another one who is my neighbor, approving of the death. No, not just the death. It's not strong enough. It isn't just that the unborn dies. The unborn is killed. The unborn's life is taken with the consent of the mother. So loving your neighbor, when we have two neighbors here— which one should get the preference, the one who is inconvenienced or the one whose life is on the line? You can decide about that. Also, I want you to think about the concept of love. Love your neighbor. What this love, that needs to be clarified. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So loving our neighbor cannot, whoever the neighbor is in this circumstance, even if we isolate it to the young lady and just disregard the human being whose life is on the line for a moment, because that's what they want you to do. Look at the girl. They don't have an unborn fetus picture here that looks like a little baby human being. No, they want you to look at the girl. I feel bad for her, and I I do feel bad for her. I mean, in principle, it was just a model picture but people in circumstances like this. This is why I, over the years, I've spoken at lots of crisis pregnancy center fundraisers to help women like this in this kind of difficult circumstance. But let's just say we're just thinking about her, okay? So should I, should I, should I, as an act of love, encourage an unrighteous act? Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, rejoices in the truth further. So that's three things so far. This is not the whole verse. It isn't the unborn child my neighbor. 
Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. 4. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I would want the kind of good for my neighbor that I would want for myself. Let me tell you something. I wouldn't want anyone to help me harm my child. I wouldn't want anyone to approve and encourage and assist in me taking the life of my child. I would not want that. Why? Because it's not good. And even if in a circumstance I was really pressed with difficulty and hardship and I'm out of my mind and I want it to happen in that moment, rescue me. I really don't want wish harm on my own offspring, my own family member. And when I request, when I demand that, I should be disregarded. So even if you take the verse at face value, love your neighbor as yourself, well, okay, if the unborn is my neighbor, I don't want to kill the unborn because I don't want to kill me. And if my the young lady is my neighbor, I, I, I wouldn't want her to encourage me to take my child's life. One last thing here, and this is just, you know, a crazy observation. There's a lot of blood, I'm sorry, ink being spilt um, on the so-called concern for so-called Christian nationalism. And I guess that... In the political left, there is a, a cry going out, the concern of Christians wanting to make a theocracy out of this country. This is complete nonsense. So when we say, I don't think it should be a constitutional right, which it isn't, to take the life of your own unborn child, oh, you want to make a theocracy out of this country. What a bunch of nonsense. It's no more an attempt to make a theocracy by limiting abortion than making it a theocracy when we say it's wrong to steal or to murder or things like that. Those are in the Ten Commandments. No, these are these are common-sense moral principles, and we think that the principle— thou shalt not murder, whether you say it with a religious intent or secular intent, applies to abortion. That's our argument. It's wrong to take an innocent human life. Abortion takes an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is wrong. That's the simple moral logic of the pro-life view. Okay. So, um, but curiously, though, if I were to take out an ad and put a baby, an unborn child's picture there, and then put, thou shalt not murder, with Exodus 20, verse whatever, that would be construed by some as an attempt at Christian nationalism. But when a non-Christian, and I think it's probably fair to say that Governor Newsom is a non-Christian, uses a verse to justify abortion— that isn't construed as a kind of Christian nationalism. You know why? Because people know he doesn't mean it. He's not a Christian. He's not trying to invoke Christian ethics in any way, shape, or form. This is a convenient passage, even though he kind of uses it in a ham-handed way, like I pointed out. It's a convenient passage to make a point to get Jesus on his side and the issue of abortion. All this is 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 uh, is pure.
political sophistry and disingenuous rhetorical manipulation. That's all this is. And I would hope that not only you could see that, but others can see it. And it does raise a question in my own mind. I'm wondering who um, the governor is intending on influencing with this. This is posted in Mississippi. He's putting up billboards in pro-life states. Okay, well, that's interesting because Mississippi folk don't vote for him, but this is drawing people to California. Maybe he wants people to move to California so they can get abortions easily instead of just travel to California. But this it says here, paid for by Newsom for... California governor 2022. It's really weird. So it's going up in pro-life states because this is his market now. You don't need to put that up here because it's you can get an abortion if you live here. Just in those places where it's not allowed, okay, come on down and uh, maybe move to California because there are a whole lot of people that are leaving. <laughs> uh, more people leaving than coming. Now I think they've already crossed that bridge, even though a lot of people coming into the state are not coming legally. They're coming from south of the border. So uh, even with that influx, he's still losing people and taxpayers, whatever, any event. So this is a, this is a mess from top to bottom, and uh, and he, you know, I guess he's intending to influence pro-abortion types in other states that have restrictive laws, and uh, but I, I I think it's broader than that. I think he's trying to march his credentials, and th- it's not. Others have mentioned that this, you know, he probably has ambitions for uh, national office. And so now he's, you know, uh, he's appealing to national voters. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. I won't protect your children. I'll protect you. Okay. So, all right. Got more callers coming up here. Let's uh, take a break and then get to calls here on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. There are now many doctors and scientists who claim that there are more than two sexes or that sex is on a spectrum. Is that true? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. 
So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. All right, turns out there's actually a whole bunch of ads being um, being um, posted around the country that are similar in that they are pro-abortion ads and come to California to get your abortion. But they really are, are most of the others. We have them in Texas. We have them in, what, Iowa, North Dakota. Amy's killing me. Indiana, South Dakota, Texas. South Carolina, the theme are very different. Texas doesn't own your body, you do. South Carolina doesn't own your body, you do. All right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, but only in Mississippi do we have a Bible verse. Uh, uh, So uh, go figure, right? Only in Mississippi do we have the abuse of something Jesus said to justify abortion. Hmm. Incidentally, um, yes, you, after a fashion, own your body, not the state. But the state tells you what you do with your body with every single law that's passed. Keep in mind, California was the first state to force you to wear masks, to force you to stay at home in 2020, to force you not to go to church, to force you, force you, force you, force you, force you to do things with your body that you should have had the liberty to do. And the rationale was, if you do these things with your body, you might hurt another human being. Whether or not you believe that rationale, notice the nature of the rationale. We know that abortion takes the life of another human being. This is not contestable. And anybody who disagrees with that just says, I I don't even know what to say about them. I honestly don't know what to say. Nobody knows when life begins. Is it growing? Yes. It's alive. What's growing? Oh, it's the mother's body. Really? Does it have her same DNA? No, it's not the mother's body. What kind of DNA does it have? Human then it's a human. This is not rocket science, as the saying goes. Ay, 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 God help us. I mean, God, help us. Hmm. All right, let's go to Patrick in Milwaukee. And Patrick, you've been so patient all last hour, waiting as I talked with Cade and jabbered on about these other things. So thank you for your conversation and uh, for your call, and thank you for your patience. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I guess a straightforward, sort of a simple question probably for you. In Psalm 51, David is writing about his repentance, about what he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he says to God, he says, against you and only you have I sinned. And I'm wondering... Why would he say that? Why would he say it that way? Um, if I had done what he had done, mm-hmm. I would obviously need to repent to God first and foremost. Yeah. But it seems like he's excluding what he's done to Bathsheba by or Uriah, taking for away her, her, her husband, who she might have loved very much, and he seemed right. like a really, a really good guy. 
and taking away Uriah's life, right? right. You know, seeming to to have him executed in battle. Mm-hmm. Why does he say against you and only you? He goes out of his way to say and only you. That seems. If somebody had around me and said that, I'd say you're not really, <laughs> you're not really repentant. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I I think you what you something a comment you made earlier is a key to this, and that is. God is the principal one that's offended, okay? And it's not that others aren't also sinned against. I see this as kind of hyperbolic, all right? Um, Think of Jesus, and Jesus makes statements about um, people sinning against others, and they must be forgiven 70 times 7. Well, that presumes that there is a harm that has come to an individual from another individual that's culpable, and forgiveness is appropriate when the right steps are taken. What David is doing here, I think, is hyperbolic. In other words, he's exaggerating for the sake of effect. When push comes to shove, the chief problem we have with the sins we've committed is with God himself against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and you are, you are blameless when you judge. God is the judge, not other people, not, not, not uh, Bathsheba or Uriah's friends or whoever else might have been inaccurately, understandably, harmed and require uh, and, and be justified let me back up and put it, and, and they're harmed, and, and, and restitution of some sense needs to be made to them. And by the way, that, that is part of the Hebrew law. Restitution is made to people who, are, who we've harmed in certain circumstances. So I don't think that this passage disqualifies that, or else it would be a contradiction with a bunch of other passages. I think David puts it this way because he realizes that he has to make things right with God, first and foremost. And that's what this entire psalm is. I mean, 19 verses. I I have most of this memorized. During Lent one year, I decided I'd memorize Psalm 51, and the first half was pretty easy. Actually, two-thirds of it was, you know, I worked on it and I got it. But then, you know, I kind of petered off towards the end, and I still can't remember it. I got to read it. But certainly the first eight or nine verses, um, there, they stuck with me. And this is, this is David's um, act of contrition towards the towards the holy God that he has to answer to for the crimes he's committed. I don't think it's intended to communicate that we don't, after a fashion, have to answer to others who we've harmed, but rather get our pecking order straight, and he realizes first things first. And it's interesting when Nathan goes after David and accuses him of his sin in that kind of clever way that he did, um, he doesn't, I don't recall him saying anything about Uriah or, uh, or, or Bathsheba, who in a certain sense were both victimized here. It's, been, it's his crime against God, which is the, the most serious offense. And I think that's okay, what he's I thought, I thought Nathan, I'm, I'm just off the top of my head, I thought Nathan told the story about someone who had all kinds of sheep that yes. went and stole somebody else's sheep. Yes. And, and and that made David mad. Well, David stole Uriah's sheep, as it were, yeah. by taking Bathsheba. Yeah. Okay, so well, in a certain sense, that makes my point, though I said, oh, he didn't focus on that. Even so, 
there is an acknowledgement that there's a crime done to someone else, but David's confession is here to God because God is the audience of his of this particular confession. And I think the verse against you and you only have I sinned is is just simply hyperbolic. It's an exaggeration. Okay. Just like I know that. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, I just was reading in Luke, uh, what, 15 or whatever, 14, and I'm just in the middle of Luke as I'm reading through the gospel right now, and there's oh, yeah, a the statement— parable. Pardon me? The prodigal—I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping the, No, the prodigal so, is in that section, you're right, but uh, the portion I was thinking about was uh, where Jesus said, you must hate your father and your mother— you know, if anyone wants to follow me, you have to deny yourself, you've got to take up your cross, and you've got to get rid of all—you've got to deny all your possessions, something like that. Well, it's clear in the rest of Scripture that we are not to become poverty-stricken. This is not a, a, an actual requirement of Jesus. These are hyperbolic ways of think of speaking in order to emphasize a particular point. And I think okay. that the same thing is going on here. Okay. Okay, I, I understand that there is that hyperbole in Scripture, and mm-hmm. I think there might be some awkwardness sometimes translating the Hebrew idioms or whatever to to our modern-day English. Yeah, um, there might be. Have you checked the, the way to find that out, a kind of simpler way, is to look at some other translations and see if the translations vary based on the judgment of the translator who thinks, well, this is a little bit better way to translate it. Have you done a comparison? I'm just curious. Uh, no, I didn't, and I can, but I did do that with—I was going to bring up, but I decided not to, but I'm bringing it up now, I guess. <laughs> Luke, the parable of the prodigal son, because the son returns to the father. Jesus is telling the story. The son returns and says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's right. And then other translations say, in your sight. Yeah. So I huh. thought, well, maybe the son is just saying, I did some wrong stuff, and you saw me do it, um, as opposed to, I actually sinned against you. But, I mean, there again, I mean, he did sin against his father by, by the, uh-huh. the, the hurtful things he did. Yeah, that's Luke 15. I actually read that uh, yesterday, and um, that's a good observation. So there, here is another place in the Scripture where it acknowledges that the sin— you know, it can be against a human party. Uh, keep in mind, though, that this is a parable, and there's an analogy here between us as sinners rebelling against our Father God. And so the Father here is standing in for God, but clearly in the parable, the Son can still say, of his Father, I have sinned against you. So I think it captures both notions here in this parable. In other words, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't work as a parable where God was the analog to the Father, and we are the analog to the wayward Son, unless the wayward Son, as a human being, had actually sinned against his Father as a human being. Then it works as a, as a parable to explain how we are to the Father. So I think the parable captures both senses, our sins yeah. against the Father and our sins against other humans. And yeah. uh, so this just reinforces, I think, the notion that Scripture does acknowledge that the sins we have are against others. But ultimately, it is not going to be others that 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 judge us, you know. In the final, it's going to be the sins against God that will be the fa- the, um, the the um, the what's the word is the. Um, I can't think of the right word here, but be the thing by which we are judged in an eternal sense. And so that's why yeah. that needs to be resolved um, yeah. as a first order. 
Make sense? Criteria. Yeah. That was the word I was stumbling for. Criteria. Okay. Make sense to you? Yeah, sure. Okay. I, I, yeah, thanks. I appreciate your, uh, you know, you know stuff, so I appreciate your knowledge on this. Okay, that's great. Uh, thank you for your call, Patrick. All right, thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Let's take a uh, quick break, and then uh, we'll have let's we'll have some. Um, what do we call them? Um, open mic calls. All right. I've got an interesting one here. Uh, actually, two that uh, that are very similar. So we'll play both of those callers and respond to them when we return on Stand to Reason. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Okay, let's uh, let's do some open mic calls. Of course, this is where you have already called in, uh, either on our website or just dialed up to do this. And uh, if you go to our broadcast page, there's information how you can do that. And just offer your question. It's recorded. And um, then we play it, and I can respond to it. So you get your live question, so to speak, except for you're not live there for me to respond to. I'll just uh, I'll, I'll take your question in stride. And by the way, if you want to d- dial up, for an open mic call, the number is 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR, or 857-342-5787. Now, we have two questions here that are very similar, so let's just uh, just have each of them offer their thoughts, and then I'll respond to both at once. The first one is Jordan from Georgia. Hello, Greg Kokel. This is Jordan from Georgia. Um, I'm going to try and keep this as short and sweet as possible since it's a recorded question. Um, I've heard this phrase touted a few times, uh, and I've come to use it myself. It's the phrase, attractions are not actions. And this is in regard to the LGBTQ community. And I just want to know if that's necessarily a good uh, phrase to use all the time, because I feel like it's a slippery slope to other more taboo attractions that we all know that would be harder to sort of accept in society 
even as attractions like incest, bestiality, or pedophilia. And I just kind of want you to unpack that phrase and that sort of a statement and um, if it's good to use or if there's any kind of merit to saying, well, if attractions are not actions, would that include those attractions? And if so, should we be more accepting in society for people that deal with those attractions and maybe get them the help they need instead of ostracizing and uh, stigmatizing them? Appreciate all you do in your ministry, Greg. God bless you guys. Thanks. All right, Jordan. Good question here. Let's see what uh, Shane from Alabama has to say. Hey, this is Shane from Alabama. Uh, There's been a lot about homosexual feelings, uh, and as long as they don't act on those feelings, they're okay, meaning uh, it's not sinful, but we know Jesus says you look upon a woman with lust. Anyways, I was wondering, uh, I know there's some friends of yours that have come out on the opposite end of that, but I was wondering how you look about the the thoughts of people, whether they're sins or not. Thank you. Okay, that was Shane, and I'm going to do this in reverse order, because um, uh, the way Shane put this, they're really very, very similar in terms of content, but the way Shane put this I, um, gives me an, uh, kind of a foothold of, of a certain type of answer or way of responding. Um, because he talked about, first of all, are homosexual feelings okay but not sinful? Then Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart with her. Now, it, to me, those are apples and oranges a little bit. I'm just making a distinction. To look on a woman to lust after her is to purposely gaze for that reason. You are looking to lust, so you're looking and you're lusting. You are not being tempted to lust or having sexual attractions for a woman you're not married to. You are actually acting on the temptation and lusting. And notice what Jesus says, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, committing adultery in your heart, and I, I, I feel I feel odd having to make this statement, but I know that there's a misunderstanding here, so I'm just going to make it. Uh, though, when you think about it, it's like, no, duh. Committing adultery in your heart is not the same as committing adultery. Let me just say it again. Committing adultery in your heart is not as same as committing adultery, maybe with your body, if you will. And again, kind of no duh. You see, there's a difference, and doing it in your heart has very different kinds, is is a much, I think, ab- obviously less gravity than doing it in reality, and the consequences of doing it, with, committing adultery with your body. Uh, however, they are both sins, which is what Jesus' point was. The law says don't commit adultery. Oh, you didn't commit adultery? Did you ever think about it? Oh, yeah, okay, going to hell. You're going to hell. That's Jesus' point. Don't murder. I didn't murder. Well, did you ever call your brother a fool? Then you're going to hell. It's kind of like murder in your heart. Maybe this is a better parallel. Isn't murder in your heart, as the way Jesus described it there, different than really killing the person? Of course it is. So these are activities that have a different gravity to them, but Jesus is making the point that the law is not going to let you escape by not doing certain actions if your heart 
is the way it is and informs other actions that are internal, not external. You're still violators of the law. Closing statement of that portion of the discourse, you are to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect, okay? So I just want to make it clear for Shane, if you're looking with lust, you are actively sinning, okay? Um, But having homosexual feelings, same-sex attraction, now that's another question, and this is where um, let's see what we got here. Uh, Jordan's point is coming in. Attractions are not actions. Okay, so let me just transition from Shane now um, to uh, to Jordan's characterization. And attractions are not actions. Oh, obviously so. Um, but of course, that's not the issue, is it? There is a difference between attractions and actions, and just as there is a difference between adultery in your heart and adultery with your body. That, but the real question is, where is the sin? Is there still sin in place here? And um, and I, I've kind of gone back and forth a little bit on this. I'll tell you what I've said in the past. I've said a temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Um, James says that uh, temptation is when we're enticed to do wrong, but when we give into the temptation and we feed it, then it gives way to sin. This is James chapter 1. I was paraphrasing there. But also makes the distinction between temptation and sin. So, but but when we have, so I, I, I think that I still stand behind that distinction. But the fact that someone has, as Shane put it, homosexual feelings or active desires, let's put it that way, or as Jordan put it, attractions, um, that, I it strikes me as something a little different than simply an enticement an external enticement. This is an internal state of affairs where we desire something that is not right. And the des- and this is where different people are going to parse this out in different ways. But I don't want to come down heavy like, you're sinning when you have a homosexual desire. Because then you can, it seems like you could, you, if that is your sense of attraction, it's going to be hard to avoid ever living a holy life. At the same time, the desire <laughs> to have sex with someone of the same sex is a sinful desire. It is an evidence of fallenness and brokenness of the human soul to have illicit sensual desires in a way that we ought not, and that would be captured in the concept of illicit. So that's a bit of a redundancy, but you get my point. Um, and so I, I, I guess part of me wants to say, yeah, that well, certainly the desire is illicit, the desire is sinful, but you're going to have them, and you can say no to the temptation, though the desire is there. So where do you exactly draw the line? And it seems to me that if you acknowledge that the giving into the desire is a sin and acknowledge that the desire itself is a is an evidence of sin, you don't need to slice and dice where you're crossing the line. Whatever the temptation is, 
we resist it. That's the right thing to do. And that we have temptations and internal desires that are wrong is also part of being a sinner. The reason why I don't worry about where the actual line is is because of the grace of God. Now, if we were saved by our works, if our behaviors are what rescue us from the holiness of God, and if I don't get it just right, I'm going to be in big trouble simply in virtue of my behavior, well, then you better know where that line is. You always got to stay on one side or the good side of that line, because that's what's required of you. The fact is, no one can stay on the good side of the line adequately enough to self-justify. And in fact, the two great commandments are excellent as examples. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when the scribe was wondering, or the lawyer was wondering and asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? He said it because he was seeking to justify himself. That's what the text said. I think I'm okay, but it depends on who my neighbor is. And Jesus said, well, your neighbor is your worst enemy. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, in my paraphrase. Okay. And so, so, given the two basic commandments, when all of the law is summed up in those two, I will tell you quite candidly, I've said it before, it's also in the story of reality, I'm in print. There's never been a moment in my life when I've ever fulfilled the first command, that I have loved God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is not in me to do that. I'm a fallen person. I cannot will it to happen. And maybe there's been a few moments where I guess I've loved my neighbor as myself, but not consistently. That isn't the standard of my life. I've gotten better over the years through sanctification, but that's not the standard. So in other words, when Jesus offers me two commandments, let's simplify the whole program here, Jesus says. Let's just boil it down to two. And this was the project of the Pharisees. Man, we got all these laws. That's pretty complicated. Let's, can we just sum it up and kind of focus on the biggies? What are the biggies? And that was a debate they had. What are the real big ones? And Jesus said, okay, here's the law is captured in these two commandments. Good luck. I think what those two commandments demonstrate, and they are sound, but they demonstrate how impossible it is for us um, to satisfy the demands of the law. And this is what Jesus was saying even, and I intimated this when I was talking about Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. You know, maybe you kept this part of the law, but you didn't keep this part. You came this big thing, but even this little bitty small thing is enough to send you into the fiery hell. That's almost exactly Jesus' language. It's interesting as he goes down in in gravity of the sin, he's increasing the punishment. Guilty before you, guilty, guilty before the court or high court, and guilty to go into fiery hell. That's the love, and, and, and these are if you just call your brother a fool, Rocco, look out. And this is why I, I am so gratified that early on in my Christian life, I, 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 I was, it was instilled in me by my teachers and by my mentors, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. I'm not, you know, hanging from a thread uh, 
depending for my acceptance on my performance? And where is that line between my sensual desires and then giving in to sensual desires? Well, don't give in to sensual desires, but even that you have them is not a good thing. It's evidence of your sin. Oh, who will rescue me from the body of this death? Who will rescue? That's Paul's plea, the end of Romans 7. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul understood that the answer to these issues our imperfection, our inability to walk that line, wherever that line happens to be, um, is exactly why we need Jesus. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul's saying, of which I was the foremost. And we each can say that of ourselves, maybe not foremost, but certainly egregious sinners. And it was John Newton who said at the end of his life, uh, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Good words to end on here at Stand the Reason. Greg Kokel, give him heaven, friends. Bye-bye.